Seafarers are subjected to blame within the industry and treated like second-grade citizens whenever and wherever they travel. We are really prisoners here. We need greater rights to protect seafarers against bullying, harassment, sexual assault and sexual health issues. Seafarers need to be given a, a better social status rather than being mistreated. It's impossible to imagine our planet without oceans. They provide us with food, energy and medicines and sustain ecosystems, communities and economies. Our oceans are highly industrialised and heavily exploited. Around 80% of products and materials are distributed by shipping. Seafood is the most highly traded food commodity in the world. And the oceans contribute to over $1.5 trillion each year to the global economy. By 2030, the oceans will provide direct employment for 40 million jobs. But those who work at sea have some of the most dangerous jobs in the world. The voices you heard at the start were testimonies of real seafarers, voiced by actors to conceal their identities. They highlight just a few problems they're facing at sea right now. So the question I'm asking today is, as our reliance on oceans grow, how do we make them a safer workplace for future generations of seafarers? I'm Professor Danielle George, and this is the Global Safety Podcast with Lloyd's Register Foundation. And joining me today are... Dr. Olivia Swift, Senior Programme Manager at Lloyd's Register Foundation, David Hammond, founder and CEO of the UK charitable NGO Human Rights at Sea, and Dr. Elizabeth Mavropoulou, Lecturer in International Law, University of Westminster. And later on in the programme, we'll also hear pre-recorded interviews with Dr. Cleopatra Doombia Henry, President of the World Maritime University, Francis Kultas, an ex-seafarer with over a decade of experience at sea, and James Michel, former president of the Republic of the Seychelles and executive chairman of the James Michel Foundation. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. And I understand you also all know each other. You've all met before, so that's really nice. I'm looking forward to a really nice chat with you all. So my first question to you all, and Olivia, I'm going to start with you if that's okay. Why is safety of seafarers a topic we should be discussing? You know, many people listening will have never worked at sea and some might might never have even been on a boat. So for those listeners who don't work at sea, why should we care? Well, the first thing is, is sheer human compassion. Um, life at sea is, as you've alluded to, very, very challenging and also very rewarding. Um, so on that basis alone, we should care. Um, but of course, that's not always that simple. Um, as you've said, we're reliant on seafarers. So in really practical terms, we need we need them to ensure that our lives and our relationships can continue as, as we're used to. And I suppose the final thing I'd say is that, as, as, as you say, as we rely on the oceans more, for those of us with children, um, you know, if we, if we want our children to have meaningful uh, career prospects, then it's absolutely in our interest that they're able to consider a safe future in those sectors as well. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thanks, Olivia. David, what do you think? As the various statistics are bantered around of 90% of the world's goods are uh, moving by sea by 1.6 million seafarers, so in UK terms, the size of Glasgow population. If we didn't have those seafarers, and indeed their families, because a lot of people don't talk about the families and the ripple effect mm. into the families, um, you simply wouldn't have IKEA existing today. You wouldn't have your main retailers. Your IT that you're listening to this wouldn't be coming to you. Um, we would go back, not quite to the Stone Age, but we would be back at least 100 years. 
Um, and people don't appreciate that. And, and it is those seafarers, men and women, and all of the supporting people in the supply chain that makes this world go round. So without it, this world simply would not go round. Wow, yeah, very powerful. Thanks, David. Elizabeth, why do you think we should care? The reason why we should care is because we do care for the ocean as the environment. There is a lot of legitimate concern on sustainability and the catch of the fish and certification, but there is much less discussion and concern on the human rights conditions that they are um, that, they, that they are on board fishing vessels and seafaring vessels. But we also have an offshore oil gas sector where seafarers or maritime workers, so also people who work offshore, are staged on oil rigs in the middle of the ocean, operating in a constant hazardous environment. And this is often, it's a profession that is hazardous, but often doesn't make the headlines. So what we do today is trying to to help people understand and uh, flesh out what is about the maritime environment, which is different, and that why we should care. Just sticking with that, Elizabeth, then. So you've talked about marine jobs being one of the most hazardous in the world. Can you just paint a picture um, of the ocean as a workplace. Again, for people listening who don't really work at sea, what's it like out there? Seafarers sometimes can be away from home for three months, six months, nine months, and even that can be extended. In contrast with the land-based professions, the private and the workspace is inherently interlinked and can be separated. So we finish our work, we might go home, we can relax, put some music on. By nature, the ship is a a confined place. So often we have complex crew dynamics. If we think of a crew of 12 different nationalities, ethnicities, cultural and religious background, these dynamics bring tensions that we on land deal different with tensions. We can leave work and we can wind off, but we can't do that on, on board a vessel. And furthermore, and I'll, and I'll finish with that, is that seafarers offer lack internet connectivity. And internet connectivity, as we might discuss, is important for them for entertainment purposes and for keeping in contact with the families. Mm. Thanks, Elizabeth. Olivia, do you just want to add to that picture of, of the ocean as a workplace? Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth's got it absolutely right. Um, two, two things I'd add, I suppose. Um, if you imagine you have a career at sea for, I don't know, 20 years, Um, and you're working for 11 months with maybe a few weeks or a couple of months break between contracts, then consider what the nature of your marriage and your relationship with your children is, you know, and children don't necessarily recognise their their, their, um, fathers when they return home. So, I mean, so that's perhaps a a little emotive and it's an extreme, but it's it's a real extreme. And the other thing I'd like to say is that, of course, it's really varied. So, as you say, there are lots of different um, ocean jobs Sometimes it's like basically living in a floating IKEA office. It's it's pretty boring. Other times it's really treacherous. And, and then of course you've got fishers who are on dugout canoes at one end of the scale and and larger vessels on the other. So so really varied, not only in terms of ships but in terms of day to day experiences, mm. week to week. Well, thanks, Olivia. Uh, David, do you want to add to that picture for us? Sure. Um, I've served at sea. Um previously and I've encountered everything from the the flat calm to um, pretty out uh, outrageous seas of uh, the south coast of um, South America um, down the Falklands and across the South China Seas and uh, as Livia highlights you know it's not all calm uh, environment Um, there is a huge amount of stress at sea um, you can't just get off your workplace. If there's a fire, an engine room flood, 
there's a collision, um, you have to save your ship um, because you have often no one else to rely on. And therefore, the tightness of the crew and that resilience and reliance on individuals is, is really, really important. And again, Olivia highlights you know, a really important point here. It's not all about the big gold standard shipping that we're talking about, uh, which is usually the face of shipping. There is a huge amount um, which is in the dark and the grey zones, and that's certainly the work that we deal with, um, uh, and owners who are operating on the edge of financial viability. Um, and so it's not all the uh, the cruise line industry. It's not all about um, a perfectly set up ship. Well, the three of you have painted a, a great picture there of us and just to show sort of the how hazardous but how important seafarers work is um, and how hazardous for them. Um, now we're going to hear from Francis Kultas. Francis worked at sea for 12 years in the Mediterranean, the Middle East and West Africa. Living on board a ship is like the way I looked at it is I always just tried to make it my home and uh, get the best out of it. The sea sort of often just drifts into the background and it's the ship that's the most important thing. And from my experience, ships always have their own personality or their own quirks and things like that. It's like a whole community, a whole um, self-contained little world. The only times that I've been scared at sea has been when there was bad weather. So on one of the trips that I was doing, we were loading mainly empty containers in one port um, and taking them north. And it was during the monsoon season. I was on the bridge and we altered course and the way that the swell and waves hit us uh, triggered something called parametric rolling. Basically it's where the, the shape of the ship and the synchronization of the waves interact so that each roll gets bigger and bigger and it sort of rolls out of control and there's a risk of injury, capsize, cargo loss. And it was absolutely terrifying because it happened almost in a split second. Um, and everything was flying around the bridge. Um, things got damaged inside the accommodation. Um, and you're very glad to be out the other side. You're very glad to make it out the other side. <laughs> I was at sea for just over a decade and I did see a massive improvement in people's attitude towards safety just in that small time, which I think is really good. But on the other hand, uh, there's, there's a risk of complacency because a lot of the jobs that you do every day are dangerous, much more dangerous than most jobs. And I think part of it is that you have to protect yourself like mentally, because if you think about all the things that could go wrong, you would never do anything on board. But part of it's also just people get desensitized to the risks and then that breeds complacency. From the very beginning, from when I started my career at sea, it was drilled into us how dangerous enclosed spaces are and that if you're helping someone who's working in an enclosed space and you lose contact with them, you don't rush in there to rescue them. You raise the alarm and you follow the rescue procedures. But to this day, the same mistakes are still happening where a crew member has gone inside a cargo hold or another enclosed space uh, and they, they've succumbed to toxic atmosphere or not enough oxygen and the people with them just rush in after them and also die. I would say, unfortunately, compared to other industries, seafarers aren't valued as much. One of the also the biggest issues is that uh, I'd say like the majority of seafarers come from the global south where things like um, unions and workers' rights don't have the same platform or swaying power that they do in the global north or Europe. If you say that to someone who's worked in, I don't know, the civil service or something all their life, the idea that the unions are essentially absent 
is just unthinkable. So I would say that it's easy for unscrupulous companies um, or careless companies to devalue seafarers because there's no consequence for it. And seafarers don't have the power to push back and uh, really advocate for themselves. I've been on ships before where people have had mental health crises and um, the environment, I would say, doesn't really uh, encourage people to open up, let's say. Some ships can be quite toxic and cliquey depending on the crew that you have, or people don't want to appear weak in front of their co-workers or they don't want to make a fuss because quite a lot of the... The work environment on board a ship is very intense. You work long hours. I'd say that the industry is going in the right direction, but it could do a lot more for uh, crew welfare, uh, for being able to, number one, tell seafarers where to reach out to, and number two, make it easier for them to reach out, like um, uh, not just practically, but like try and transform the culture on board. Okay, thank you to Francis Kultas for that. Now, I want to talk to you three a little bit about the sort of regulation, the law and the enforcement side. So, so Elizabeth, what is the ocean like in terms of health, safety and human right laws compared to on land? And is there enough legal protection for seafarers, do you think? Thanks, uh, Danielle. So from an international law perspective, there is legislation that covers extensively matters of health and safety in light of the particular context and nature of the maritime environment. So there is labor rights legislation for seafarers. Uh, we know we call it it's the Maritime Labor Convention. So this convention is widely ratified, which means many states have undertaken legal responsibilities towards seafarers' rights, safety, welfare and social security. By contrast, fishers are not extensively protected in international law. And this is because the relevant piece of legislation, the Work in Fishing Convention, only entered into force in 2017 and is far uh, less uh, ratified than the, than the Maritime Labour Convention. So these instruments have a positive and a negative. The positive of these two specific maritime labour instruments is that they have been drafted with a sea context in mind, with this unique context that is a maritime environment, which is very different to the land context. But these two legal instruments focus exclusively, and perhaps rightly so, on labour rights, including social security rights, so they are by definition very narrow. But they are yet other human rights that they're not explicitly covered in these two instruments and which affairs are entitled to by virtue of being human. Having said that, we have the legislation, which is extensive, but we have substantial evidence that despite this extensive legislation, human rights, the, the human rights of those who work at sea and on board merchant ships or fishing vessels are not fully respected, protected or fulfilled. And in my view, this is a problem more of enforcement rather than lack of legislation that we might mm. talk about. So how easy or difficult is it to enforce the law at sea? It is not easy to enforce them. First of all, we have the, if we especially try to understand that oceans cover 70% of the globe, it's almost physically impossible to demand 
to, to actually demand from navies or authorities to enforce, to, to police and monitor such um, extensive uh, geographic space. However, for, for the audience to understand how maritime labor laws, for example, are enforced, is they're enforced through inspections, inspections of the, of the ships who are docked in port and where the port state comes and enforces the laws. However, most of the time there is unwillingness on the part of the port state to enforce the law. So they do not monitor, they don't want to go on board and inspect. David, what does it mean for the people who work on fishing boats? So from a law enforcement side, what does it mean for them? What risks are they facing? Well, I'd say they'd uh, face significant more risks than what I'd call the commercial seafarer at the good end of the spectrum. Um, We're talking, particularly if you look around Southeast Asia, but the deep and distant water fleets um, from China, um, Taiwan, South Korea operating sometimes for years at sea, not months, for years at sea. Um, There is a a lack of pay, um, a lack of conditions on board that of sanitation, lack of access to medical and health care, lack of access to any form of family life, often no uh, communications because they don't have internet access. Um, And uh, in terms of statistics coming from the likes of the UN, from the Food and Agricultural Organization, on average, 32,000 fishers lose their life at work every year. That's 32,000. Wow. Um, Good grief. And if we put that into the context of the scope and scale of those people living, working, transiting at sea every day... If you were to ask that question, how many people you think are at sea every day, um, most people would say maybe a couple of hundred thousand, possibly even a million. Now, we assess um, from UN statistics, it's around about 30 million people operating at sea every single day. And therefore, within the fishing communities, the scale and scope of fishing abuses is simply not tracked to any degree. There are a number of um, attempts to quantify um, reported abuses, um, but we have dealt with everything from murder at sea, disappearances at sea, serious sexual abuse, rape, um, trafficking, um, organ, organ harvesting, particularly in the indigenous fishers as well. Um, and, and there's a lot of little bits of information coming out, um, uh, but there is virtually no um, accurate picture of the level and the scope of abuses. And that also includes child labour. What do we need to do to to address this? What needs to change? One thing we continue to push from UN level to state level is this issue of transparency. We have fought for eight years to pursue transparency across commercial sectors, across um, and at state level for the true levels of abuse Um, and failures in safety and security of workers and and the knock-on effects for families. But there is an intense corporate veil. And a lot of it fundamentally comes down to uh, protecting corporate image. So where we're coming from is saying we need to be more transparent, we need to have greater levels of data, and we need to be working with more partners to bring it to the forefront so that politicians particularly can drive legislative and policy changes Um, to try and address it. But to finish off, I do not believe we will address this in my lifetime. This is generational and it's got to be a generational shift in attitude towards accountability and deterrent effect and enforcement. 
Olivia, it's good It's good to hear David talking about sort of the law and the policy, you know, hopefully that can change and, and be enforced. What is the role of the consumer? I mean, do, do we have a role in this? I think that's such an interesting question. I mean, um, many, uh, I'm personally, I'm allergic to fish, but I'm still aware that those of us who do buy fish um, may find it quite confusing, actually, the number of logos and standards that are attached to the packaging. Um However, you know, that's, you know, so there is activity if I'm buying fish. But as we've said, seafaring um, delivers everything that we use, essentially. And never do we really see on packaging or in any of our experiences as consumers visibility of the human uh, labour that's brought it to us. Elizabeth. Yeah, I was thinking actually about what's the role of the consumer and sometimes, and that's my feeling, is like we care more about the fish than, than the human who caught, who catch the fish. And perhaps this is, well, we all need fish that is sustainably caught because we care for the environment and we, we want fish not to be overfished and not to be illegally fished and all this sort of stuff. And I am a fish lover. I might eat fish three times a week, for example. But children, for example, don't know how the fish comes to their plate. They don't know that somebody might wake up 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning, lash out at sea in various conditions through hurricanes sometimes to bring back the fish. But I think the education needs to start from a very young age. Perhaps, I don't know, visit, visit schools and explain to children what is the fish, how it's being caught, who catches it and under what conditions um, it does so. Okay, uh, now we're going to hear a clip from Dr. Cleopatra Dumbia Henry, who is president of the World Maritime University. Dr. Dumbia Henry was responsible for developing the ILO Maritime Labour Convention in 2006, which established rights to decent working and living standards for seafarers. The world's seafarers make shipping what it is. And they are the one responsible for ensuring that the goods that we take for granted reach the shores. They operate in one of the most challenging of professions. And they are out of sight and out of mind. In light of the pandemic uh, that the world has faced and continues to face, the seafarers, the working and living conditions of seafarers, in fact, unfortunately, got worse. And the world seafarers today come from the developing world. And so they they are much more challenged and, in my view, have been terribly um, um, impacted, negatively impacted uh, during this pandemic because so many of them had to continue to be at sea for, for months past the period of time when, under international law, they should have been able to um, uh, return home at the end of the period of service that uh, on for which they signed. So these created huge, uh, had huge consequences in terms of mental health. This is one of the big issues, the issue of mental health. But I would hope that um, for the future, certainly as far as seafarers are concerned, much more attention um, would be paid to, should be paid to them because, frankly, they bore the brunt of that pandemic. So we still have a concern about attracting young people to go to sea, irrespective of the country from which they come. 
for the time being. Shipping depends on seafarers. Wow, thank you to Dr. Cleopatra Dumbia-Henry for that. It was really interesting to hear Cleopatra talk there about mental health of seafarers. Um, Olivia, what sort of mental health issues do people who work at sea actually face and and why are they facing them? Well, of course, uh, mental health is is something that affects, well, we all have it, it affects all of us, and those at sea have obvious challenges. Um, The fact that they're in an isolated, uh, inherently dangerous environment, um, away from home, often with poor connectivity, all the things we've talked about. We know from research that both relatively mild uh, mental health concerns such as anxiety, depression are, are higher in the seafaring population than they are in, in, on land-based populations. And unfortunately, there's convincing anecdotal on the whole evidence that suicide rates are higher among seafarers as well. Um, and this has particularly been an issue during the pandemic and the crew crisis that we've talked about already. So, um, so there is all that. And also factor in the fact that it's a multinational workforce working on um, ships, for example, and therefore you have a a real diversity in attitudes to and understandings of um, mental and mental health and ill health. So, what sort of things do you think need to be put in place for people who are struggling with mental health issues when they're at sea? Mm. Well, I think there are there are two sides to it. So, there's the what you can do to help the individual and part of that is prevention so there's about you know supporting individuals become more resilient and then there's all the therapeutic let's call it things one can put in place for those who are struggling as you say so that's that could be helplines it could be um, addressing uh, improving the leadership or soft skills of leaders on ships it could be frankly getting internet uh, to be more reliable all sorts of things Um, And the focus is often on the individual seafarers, which is important. But if we really want to see a change here, what we really need to attend to are the structural issues and to prevent mental ill health in the first place. So that's everything from um, making sure that food and water are sufficient and of good enough quality. So relatively practical things like that to, to, to trying to reduce the maximum time one spends at sea on a contract to um, putting guarantees in place for the reliability of internet connectivity, making um, employment less precarious, um, and so on and so forth. So there's a huge expanse there and there's a role for everyone, uh, regulators, states, charities, individuals, you name it. Absolutely. Okay, so we've heard a few examples of the sorts of risks faced by people who work at sea and we know we need to protect our oceans, but we also desperately need them to provide us with food, energy and even things like medicines, as well as physically bringing us goods from overseas, like we've talked about earlier. Um, Our ocean economy really is key to survival, isn't it? So James Michel, former president of the Republic of the Seychelles and executive chairman of the James Michel Foundation, has been championing what he calls a blue economy for years. So what is a blue economy? Here's President Michel to explain. Uh, The blue economy is what we call the sustainable development of the ocean and its resources by finding the right balance between environmental conservation and socio-economic development. It seeks to uh, promote economic growth social inclusion and uh, improvement of livelihoods, while at the same time ensuring environmental sustainability. The blue economy is a relatively new approach 
to the use of and uh, development of the ocean and its uh, resources. The blue economy has now anchored sustainability as the way forward. It helps by ensuring that there is proper management and control over the use of the sea and coastal areas for development and exploitation of resources. I believe that with the advancement of science and technology, which should give us a better understanding of the oceans, there will definitely be new entrepreneurship avenues, creating new sustainable, and I emphasize on it, sustainable industries, and at the same time, ensuring regeneration of uh, marine resources. One I can think of uh, is the expansion and development of new high-tech vessels, both automated and uh, manned, uh, that can reach great depths to explore the water column and seabed. This will take marine science and marine-based technologies uh, further. Discoveries of new species with uh, medicinal properties can bring further development in the pharmaceutical industries. I believe the possibilities are enormous and beyond our imaginations today. To some extent, the blue economy will contribute uh, to make uh, a seafarer's job uh, safer. It is about having the right balance between nature and exploitation. And achieving this uh, can greatly reduce the risks associated with several seafaring jobs. An example, many species of fish have migrated further away from coastal areas as a result of pollution, warmer temperatures and uh, other human activities. This has had a major impact on the fisheries uh, sector. Fishermen today have to go further and further at sea, sometimes deeper to reach uh, stocks in dangerous conditions. So allowing stocks to replenish naturally and uh, nature to heal itself through marine protected areas may mean uh, uh, that some species return closer to the coast and eliminating the risk associated with uh, fishing in the deep uh, ocean, including exposing crews and vessels to dangerous uh, weather conditions. Well, thanks there to James Michel, former president of the Republic of the Seychelles and exec chairman of the James Michel Foundation. Now, President Michel is clearly hopeful for the future of the blue economy. And it sounds like we need to transition to this blue economy while making sure that we create safe jobs. Now, Olivia, in your work, you talk about a just transition. Can you just explain to our listeners what that means, please? So, yes, certainly. The transition in question for shipping is that to decarbonise the shipping industry, which is so urgently needed. So for seafaring, for example, the just transition means that we do that in a way that is uh, fair and equitable. That means um, some quite specific things. It sounds quite um, abstract when you say phrases like just transition, but it actually comes down to at least uh, half a dozen aspects. One is around making sure everyone has a voice, that uh, all stakeholders, particularly workers, um, have a say in changes that affect them. 
Um, the second uh, that's really important is that we make sure we're aware of where jobs are going, so where new jobs are being created, where jobs are going to be um, less uh, in demand and so forth. So that modelling and thinking ahead and making sure that the skills and the training and the re-education is in place to make sure that we've got the, the workers we need able to work safely when they're needed, where they're needed. So that's a big piece. Then we also need to have um, social protection in place for those who are left behind. Um, so policies to protect workers throughout the whole system. Um, we need to make sure that equity exists to the relationship between state, um, states so that it's not all happening in, say, uh, Northern Europe and the states, that there's tech and knowledge transfer between states. Um, and the other really important thing is that we transition in a way that's, that makes the most of the potential diversity of the labour force so that we develop policies that are inclusive as they can be now and reap the benefits for the future. How do we make sure that the new jobs we create are safer than they are now and we don't um, make the same mistakes we've made in the past? When you're thinking about safety, you have to think about um, the whole system. So you engineer for safety. You make sure that your um, technology and your machinery is safe and that you've got the standards in place. You, you have the legislation in place that's needed for safety. You get the training in place. And it, so again, there are levels. Then it comes down to sort of safety culture, company policies, the whole piece. So there are multi-layers and there's a role for all the actors and it needs to be done in a coordinated way. So it's a really exciting time and I, I, I'm personally very optimistic that we're, we're going to get it right, you know, and we're going to learn from past transitions and, and, and think ahead sufficiently. That's good to hear then. Um, <laughs> all right, so we've got time for, for one final question for everyone on the panel. Elizabeth, I'm going to come to you first. Um, just in a, in a nutshell, what is your vision for the future of ocean safety? What do you want the ocean workplace to look like in 2030? So with a caveat that I don't work in the ocean and I think that caveat should be made uh, explicit, what I would want is to see the ocean to be a place of safety for people who work, transit and operate in it. I would like the labour regimes at sea to develop, to be refined, existing legislation to be uh, further developed and refined, but also to have better enforcement and transparency. People who work at sea need to feel that they are supported and safe so they can flourish because it's also positive. There are opportunities to work in the maritime environment. And I think this is a role for the industry. And the industry, of course, has its own goals and visions and means of doing this. But lastly, for 2030, I would like to be able to fight the general sea blindness surrounding the maritime environment. Um, general audience people don't know what's happening at sea. I didn't know before I started my research. So I think that can only be achieved by raising awareness on the challenges of the profession, like we do now, inform those who are shaping policies, designing legislation or applying the various law. So that will be for me the vision for 2030. Now, David, you have been at sea. What's your vision for the future of ocean safety? What, what do you want it to look like in 2030? From a civil society perspective, um, I would say a transparent and accountable environment that's got a fair and balanced picture, um, avoiding narrative distortions, um, particularly by those with commercial gain and commercial benefit um, from exploiting resources, which are finite. Um, and in terms of the shipping sector, which I've said for many years, 
Um, it's not hard, the transparent, accountable, deterrent effect approach. And actually, as an example, to finish off for your listeners, you only have to look at the global aviation industry, their crew resource management, their um, ability to report um, incidents and learn from them and then apply them in policies. And it's already working in a major global industry. So I would like to see the shipping industry lose its corporate veils and be much more like the global aviation industry in terms of its transparency, accountability, and therefore the deterrent effect against impunity, um, which means that those victims who do find themselves in those tragic, sometimes tragic circumstances, their families have justice. Interesting. Thanks, David. And Olivia, finally, what's your vision for the future of ocean safety? What's it like in 2030? I suppose I'd like to not be having podcasts like this. Uh, no offence intended. I would like to, <laughs> I'd like there to be less of a distinction between land, sea, air. So that, um, I mean, as I've alluded to before, I've got young children and in 2030, they'll be a sort of university age and thinking about their working lives. Um, occasionally they talk about, oh, maybe I'll work uh, for an airline. Um, never do they talk about working in the ocean. I would love them to not see these distinctions, to think about um, having a meaningful career in an ocean job where they'll be contributing to a growing sector that we need to solve some of the world's most pressing challenges. And I know as their mother that they're going to be safe, that they'll have decent work, that they'll have stable employment that they'll be able to maintain uh, relationships ashore, perhaps have, you know, have functioning family lives and and still be able to work in the ocean. And of course, the ocean will always be the ocean. It is it isn't solid land. Um, And that's so exciting. You know, that's why people go to sea. Um, So I would I would really love to be having a conversation in a few years time that I'm not instigating where my children are suggesting, (laughs) perhaps because they've had those conversations at school. Um, wow, you know, I could do this, I could do that. And I'll just be sitting there nodding, smiling quietly to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you all. What an absolutely fascinating discussion. I've learned so much uh, over the past hour. I think it's really highlighted for me that we all have a part to play to improve the safety and the experience of our seafarers. So I'd like to thank you all. Thank today's panel, uh, Dr. Olivia Swift, David Hammond and Dr. Elizabeth Mavropoulou. I'd also like to thank President James Michel, Francis Kultas and Dr Cleopatra Doumbia-Henry, who we heard from earlier as well. And of course, thank you for listening. Please do join us again for the next episode of the Global Safety Podcast with Lloyd's Register Foundation. And remember to follow or subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you. Bye.